0: If a fire were to break out in your house, what would you do? Well, you'd try to put it out. But if it began to get out of control, then what would you do? You would get out, right? Do you have an evacuation plan at your home? Do you have a diagram on the wall that shows everybody in the house how to, no, you probably don't. There's the door, go there, right? We have exit signs up here. We've got a door back there. If we had a disaster here, we have an evacuation plan. Uh, At least the fire marshal requires that we do. Right here, this shows how to get out of the second floor. I think everybody knows how to get out of the first floor, you know where the doors are. And then also too, we have a couple of uh, fire extinguishers on the bottom floor. And what does it say? Well, it doesn't say this exactly, but what's the traditional phrase? In case of emergency, what? Break glass, right. You break the glass, you take the fire extinguisher out. We have emergency plans. We have evacuation plans for everyday life. Not many years ago, we, uh, some thoughtful people in the church decided it would be good for us to have an AED. What is an AED? An artificial external defibrillator. Now, some of you have internal defibrillators, but we have that in case somebody then has a a heart incident. You know, when I was growing up, when I was a teenager, we lived in Germany, and it was confidential. We weren't to share this with anyone. Officially, it was class confidential by the Department of Defense. We had an EDRE, an E-D-R-E, and that is an Emergency Deployment readiness exercise that we went through every year. We had a plan. I knew exactly where, no matter where I was, where I was to go to meet whom I was supposed to be with in order to gather up together, to marshal together at different marshaling points. And then we were to head west. And I still can't tell you which town it is, not because I don't know it, but it's still classified. We still have troops in Europe that have an Edri plan to evacuate. This was for dependents. And every military unit has one in case of emergency deployment. We all have some kind, hopefully, of plan to meet emergencies in our life. And you know, God's given us a plan. He's given us a plan for whenever there is trouble in our life. We heard Jesus begin that plan when he said, "'Repent, for the kingdom of God is near.'" And then what did he do? He looked out at those that were beginning to follow him, and he told them what? Follow me. Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And then he said to go along which way? Not the broad way that leads to destruction, but the narrow way and enter through the small gate. And last week, we discovered on the hill there in Galilee, somewhere on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, that the disciples... Yes, even with all of this, they, they sometimes wavered. They sometimes doubted, but he reassured them. This morning, I want to talk about the continuation of that plan, that emergency plan. And it boils down to two words. Follow me. Follow Jesus. But when we do that, you can be assured of this. If you have made a commitment to follow Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior at some time in your life, you know what I'm about to say probably. What follows? We follow him, what follows us? Adversity. Some kind of adversity will come into your life, and adversity comes into everyone's life. But some kind of adversity will come into your life because you are a follower of Jesus. The word in the Greek is what we translate as temptation but it really means some kind of resistance that results in our testing or our temptation. Another way of putting it is a trial that we go through. Sometimes it's testing. The testing is something that proves our worth or maybe even strengthens us. And and sometimes it comes naturally. Sometimes they are things that just happen to us that God lets happen to us. And as we work through the trial, then we become stronger in our faith and we become purified. Sometimes it's a test that God sends intentionally, and we see this throughout Scripture, that God tested his followers to make sure not that he questioned their faithfulness, but to strengthen them and to prepare them for further adversity that comes naturally. James tells us that we ought to count it all what? How does James begin? We ought to count it all what? Joy when we encounter many, many trials. Because you see, this builds then our perseverance. It strengthens our faith. And it makes us it makes us the person that God wants us to be. James tells us that this happens with our faith, that it's purified, that it's proven, and that's the same word. It's it's tested, just like gold is tested, so it'll be purified. Sometimes it's not that kind of testing. Sometimes it's just outright temptation. And it's the same word. It's used in a different context. It means that we have been enticed. Enticed and lured that our faith, in fact, could become weaker. But the other side of that is if we resist, our faith becomes stronger. What we must be certain of is this. Temptation does not come from God. Trials do. He takes us through, and He lets things happen that strengthen us. But the Scripture tells us very clearly in James, let no person say when he or she is tempted that I'm tempted of God, because God cannot be tempted, and God tempts no one. He does not lure bait in front of us to see whether or not we will take it. We know who does that. Jesus, in fact, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, He tells us to pray to the Father and ask that he not lead us into temptation. And actually, that probably is better read, let us not be led into temptation. He is the one that guards us from being led into temptation. We know who the tempter is, and it is Satan. He tries to use temptation to derail us, to derail our faith, to neutralize us, and it's through that kind of trial that is temptation. What he's doing is he's assaulting our resolve, He is questioning our assurance, or he causes us to question our assurance and doubt. And in fact, he's attacking our what? Our relationship with God. This is what we saw happening last week. As the disciples who came to and did worship Jesus on the mountain, they wavered a little bit. You see, there was a, a temptation there. And did they come through that temptation? Well, yes, they did. It strengthened their faith. You see, this is a universal problem every person in this room every person watching is tempted not just once but continuously in their lives you know it's a human condition the scripture says it's common to humankind to all humankind but we're given the promise god can make it bearable and he provides a way of what escape an evacuation route he's got an emergency plan and that's what we're here to talk about this morning. It's a human condition, and Jesus Christ was fully human, so in fact, Jesus was tempted as well. Yet without what? Without sin. He was tempted in every way that we have been or will be tempted, that the devil could find to tempt us with. He was tempted throughout his life, not just in the instance that we talk about this morning. And it was because he suffered. Because he went through those trials that we are told in Hebrews then that he is able to help us when we're tempted. Because he's been through that. He knows, the scripture tells us in 2 Peter. He knows how then to rescue the godly from temptation. And he empathizes with us. And he wants to assist us. So the remedy, of course, the emergency plan is to follow Jesus. The scripture says that he will provide a way out. God will provide a way out. We know then that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. He is the way out. You see, he walked this path before. He has an emergency plan that he exercised in his life that he gives us in scripture. And we should learn it. We should memorize it, we should commit it to our heart, and we ought to exercise it every day, sort of like an Edri plan. We need to rely on him. We need to rely on scripture as it is laid out for us on how to implement this plan so that we will know and we will be able and be able then to resist the wiles of the devil. We need to follow his example. So why don't you stand with me as we read the example of Jesus doing this very thing. There are two accounts in Scripture, one from the book of Luke and the earlier one from the book of Matthew. Matthew, then the fourth chapter, beginning in verse number one. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he, that is Jesus, answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. And we read this this morning from Psalm 91. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the, de- then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. The word of God, and we give thanks for it. Let's be seated. You know, out of this, we need to remember the context. Jesus had just been baptized. And what, what, was, what was happening there He was demonstrating his submission to the Father and his obedience to accomplish the Father's will as he began his ministry. And that's very important. He first did what before he entered the temptation? He submitted to the Father, and he was obedient. And then after this, it's not in Matthew's gospel, but after this in Luke's gospel, immediately after this, he's in Nazareth. And he proclaims then from Isaiah's text that he is the Messiah who has come to then relieve the oppressed and to bring the gospel to the poor. And after that, what happened? They rejected him, they tried to stone him. So we need to remember this, the temptations and the resistance and the problems that Jesus faced did not stop, obviously, in the wilderness. He overcame Satan and the devil in the wilderness, but Satan never gave up. It was before he called his disciples. What this suggests to me is that he had already experienced the kind of hardness and resistance in life to which he was calling his disciples. So he knows that when he calls us, and he knows that when you then accept him as Lord and Savior, and you encounter the same kind of resistance, he knew that before he ever called you. He's been through it. He, he knew that when he told him to count the cost, that it was serious. You see, for he had counted the cost as well. There's some principles that come out of this text, I think, three very brief principles, and then I want to apply them. First, and it's obvious, resist the devil. You know, James tells us to tell the, to resist the devil in James 4, but it's in the same order that Jesus did it. James 4, 7 says, first, 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 submit to God, and then resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We cannot resist the devil without submitting to God first, and a lot of people try to do it in their own power. You see, Jesus set the example for this. As the Son of God in eternity, He obeyed the Father and submitted to Him, Philippians tells us, when He poured His heavenly glory out, and He became a man. And He continued to submit to the Father as He then was obedient to Him and accomplished the Father's will, even to the point where He died. And He died a sinner's death, and He wasn't a sinner. He died a criminal's death, and He wasn't a criminal. So that he could cancel the sin in our lives, he died on the cross. You see, he submitted to the Father. He submitted to the Father on the earth before that, at the very beginning of his ministry, in his baptism. He shows that he is there in submission to do his Father's will. He is in the desert doing what? For 40 days. He's fasting. And what always went along with fasting? Prayer. It's not explicitly said there, but we know that that's what he was doing. So you see, he is there seeking the Father's will, submitting to him. And then, at the end of the temptation, he takes it a step further, and he looks at Satan, and he actively engages him, and he confronts him. He is not fearful because he is walking in submission to the Father, obeying him, and then he looks at Satan, and he says what to him? Be gone. Go away. And Satan had to obey him. Resist the devil. Second principle is to rely on God. Well, Jesus did that, we know. We're told in John, the fifth chapter, that, that he watches the Father. And He does nothing that the Father doesn't do. He does exactly what the Father does. He does nothing on His own, He says. And that's something. The Son of God does nothing on His own without permission from the Father and watching the Father. You see, He was there to accomplish His Father's will. He relied on Him. Jesus relied on the Holy Spirit. Who is it that transports Him in the desert then? He doesn't just amble off in the desert accidentally, coincidentally. It is the Holy Spirit then that takes him in the desert for this specific purpose, to be tempted by the devil. And I believe that that means that the Holy Spirit is with him. I believe it is the Holy Spirit that is with him and assisting him in the desert. It doesn't say it this way, but Jesus tells his disciples later, when you stand before governors and kings and you don't know what to say, don't worry about what you're going to say because when you speak then, if you rely on the Holy Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit that is speaking for you, not you yourself. I don't know exactly how this worked, but I believe that that's happening in the desert where in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, he brings to the Lord's mind the Word of God and he assists him, you see, in confronting the devil. Jesus understood. He relied on God. He relied on his Word. He used Scripture to combat Satan. Not just the knowledge of it, not just knowing what the words were, but he knew the proper application of the Scripture and it guided his way. Jesus stood firm in the armor. Jesus stood firm in the armor of God. And you know what that is from Ephesians, the sixth chapter. He was girded with God's truth. He invested himself with the the breastplate of righteousness. He is and was the righteous one. He protected himself with the shield of faith. And we know what it says, what Paul says in Ephesians. What does a shield of faith do? It then does what? It then prevents It extinguishes the fiery darts of the devil. That's what's happening in the desert with Jesus. And then he countered everything that Satan said explicitly with a what? Sword of the spirit, with a word of God, as he quoted scripture. He relied on God. He resisted the devil. He relied on God. And we need to know this too. He recognized how Satan works and we do too. How does Satan work? And that's where I wanna make the application. How does Satan work? When we look at this, we see that the more we resist Satan, the less it takes to satisfy him. The more we resist Satan, the less he expects of us to satisfy him. Secondly, the more we resist resist Satan, the more he keeps on. The more he persists, we resist, he persists, he keeps on. And then finally, the more we resist Satan, the more determined he becomes. You might say the more desperate he becomes. So, let's take a look at those three things. The first, the more we resist Satan, the less it takes to satisfy him. What's going on here? Well, you look at each test, and there is, an, there is a less difficulty in the test that is applied by Satan. At, at first, he says, change these stones into bread. What would that have taken to do? It would have required Jesus to do what? To perform a supernatural miracle. No human, human can do that. Could Jesus have done that? Of course he could have. <laughs> we also know that God can raise up children out of stones. He can make children for Abraham out of stones. God can do it, sure. But it would have required that. You take a look at the second temptation, jumping off the pinnacle of the temple. This would not have required a miracle, but it would have required in, you know, tremendous courage and extreme human faith. And then you look at the third temptation. It was a simple physical act. Chris preached on this about three weeks ago. And he made this point very well. All it would have taken was just for him to do what? Bow down. That's it. Just a physical act. And after all, nobody's watching. Where is he? (laughs) He's up on a mountain. Nobody would have known. But Jesus knows this. His heavenly Father and all of the heavenly hosts are watching. But you see this. Satan demands less and less and less. His rationale is this. All I need is a what? All I need is a foothold. All I need is a little toehold. You see, he exploits in our lives the smallest advantage and and explodes it into devastating destruction. The smallest, he expands and explodes into the greatest effect— The most insignificant thing in our life that he tempts us with and we yield becomes then something later of weighty consequence. It is sin. You think about the invasion at Normandy. Along a very small and narrow strip of sand, only 50 miles wide and only a couple of hundred yards deep, that small strip of land was the key to victory in Europe in World War II. You stop and think about all the oil wells. There are about 8,000 oil wells in Texas, I think. Well number 2636WA is in the Gwendolyn Lease. You get out here on I-20 and you head west 300 miles between Midland and Odessa, and the most productive well in the world is there. Drill 9,000 feet down, almost two miles, and then across underneath the uh, West Texas sand, about a mile and a half, almost two miles horizontally. Then it taps into a vast oil, oil lake, produces 4,100 barrels a day, and it all comes out of a pipe that is less than what? One foot in diameter. You see, that's the way Satan works. A small entry point entering into the vast lake of our life, and he can drain us. The most poisonous substances on this earth are the tiniest things. VX nerve gas, one one hundredth of an ounce proves fatal to a human. The most toxic substance substance on the earth, botulinum toxin. one ounce of that, one ounce of that would kill 330 million people, all of the population in the United States. It's 150,000 times more powerful than cyanide. Well, the word of God tells us that the wiles and the temptation of Satan, though as insignificant as they may seem in our life at times, can become the most devastating and poisonous of all. The application of this is what? Very simple. The first point, you know, it doesn't take much to satisfy Satan, but Ephesians tells us, Paul tells us there, do not give the devil a foothold. Do not give him an inch, he'll take a what? Don't give him an inch, he'll take what, church? He'll take a mile. Don't even give counsel to sin. Don't let sin come into your house. When sin comes then onto the portal, when it comes onto the porch, don't even open the door to it. You see, a little bit of leaven does what? It leavens the whole lump. And let me tell you, Satan is the diabolical baker. He is the diabolical baker. Just a pinch of evil in his recipe spells disaster and ruin in our lives. It only takes a little bit. Secondly, the more we resist Satan the more he persists. The more we resist Satan, the more he persists. He never gives up. Even with Jesus, look at this. Even with Jesus, he continued to be tempted by Satan. Look at verse number two. You know, it says, and then Satan came, but I'm not sure he hadn't been before. I suspect during that 40 days, every day Jesus was being tempted. And the Bible doesn't say that. But I don't think he was tempted just three times. I think these were typical things that the Scripture tells us about. And then the Scripture says in verse 11, then the devil left him. But when you look at the Luke account, you know what it says. It says, then after all these temptations, the devil left him for what? Until an opportune time. There was going to be a later time. You see, Satan still opposes God. He is the angelic leader of spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. He feels he's in competition with God. He's a superhuman deceiver. But what's ironic about that, he not only deceives you and me, he deludes himself. You stop and think about this. The book of Revelation has made it very, very clear. Satan's end, his doom, is sealed. We know what's going to happen to him. But here is Satan. He really, really believes, I think this, he really, really believes that he has a chance in defeating God. The deceiver has deceived himself, and he tries to deceive us. And in that, he continues to tempt us. He continues to try to defeat God. He continued to try to defeat Jesus. Afterward, we saw what happened in Nazareth. And then later, there are several instances in Jesus' life where it shows that Satan was still at work trying to trip him up. But Jesus refused. He rejected since, 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 um, sensationalized praise. The devils would bow down before him and proclaim that he was the son of God, and he didn't let that go any further. He said, shut up. <laughs> I don't need your praise. You see, that's Satan tempting him. He evaded popularity and human political agendas after he, about just before he fed the uh, 5,000, or right after he'd fed the 5,000, before he crosses the lake. They come clamoring after him, and they want to make him king, and he refused to let them do so. He, fruit, he refused to take his authority and lord it over his followers like they were slaves. He said what? No, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but what? To serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He rejected the temptation to abandon his mission, and that is the call of the cross. Peter, when Peter looked at him and said, well, surely, Lord, that's not going to happen after Jesus said that he was going to go to Jerusalem and he was going to be rebuked and he was going to be beaten and he was going to be killed. He was going to be crucified and then raised. Peter said, well, surely, Lord, that's not going to happen. And what did Jesus say to Peter? What did he say? He said the same thing that the Lucan account said that Jesus said to Satan. He said, get thee behind me, Satan. And Gethsemane. He is anguishing. He is sweating so much as it is, as though there were great drops of blood. And he's anguishing because he does not really want to do this. But he doesn't let Satan defeat him. He says, nevertheless, Father, not my will, but thy will be done. You see, time and time and time again, he resisted temptation. He would not let political power and human power then usher in the kingdom of God. When Peter struck off Malchus's ear, he said, Peter, put your sword away, and then he healed Malchus's ear. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. You see, if it were of this world, my followers then would fight in order to protect me and to keep me from being turned over to the Jews. Then he refused the greatest temptation of all by Satan on the cross. As Jesus is thinking about Psalm 2, and he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He resisted that temptation from really believing that the Father had abandoned him because he knew Scripture. He knew how that psalm ended. He knows that that psalm ends in victory. And then with the last breath of his life, he says, what? Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. You see, time and time and time, Jesus was tempted. Folks, if Jesus was tempted throughout his life, then temptation comes to our door every day. You know, the Bible says God never slumbers and he never sleeps. But here's another principle, neither does Satan. He constantly stalks. Don't you know that your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour? He does that constantly. And the application is this. We must stay on guard. The beginning of that passage in 1 Peter is this, be sober, be vigilant, your adversary the devil prowls around. Never presume to be invulnerable, none of us is. We're all susceptible, friends, if Jesus was. You know, the pastor and uh, clinical uh, officer at his hospital, John Keller, wrote a book, Let Go, Let God, and he's pretty insightful. He says every person on the face of this earth is prone to some kind of addiction. It doesn't mean we have to be addicted, but we're prone to some kind of addiction. And he he talks about the intoxicants that lead to self-destructive behavior. And he says almost everyone is susceptible to one of these, to success, popularity, and power instead of service. Work, especially professionals, and especially for preachers. Sex, money, pleasure, leisure food, drugs, whatever they may be and the subtitle of his book is this Surrender Self-Centered Delusions in the Costly Journey of Faith Satan tries to delude us that somehow we're invulnerable that, that, that temptation isn't going to then affect us and then he turns around and tempts us we need to be honest with God and honest with self because we know that God sees everything we can't fool him John tells us in his first letter, if we say we don't have sin, we do what? We lie. We don't just lie to God. We we, we don't just lie. We lie to God. So we need to be humble and contrite and repent of godly sorrow. That's what Jesus said at the beginning of his ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. And then we need to follow through. We need to follow through. As Satan persists in our lives, continue to submit to God and resist the devil and do like then Jesus did. Engage proactively, positively, and forthrightly. If we've submitted to God and we intend to resist the devil, then we need to look him straight in the eye and say, what? Be gone. Go away. And you know what? He will. Until an opportune time. Until tomorrow, until the next day, he comes back. And the final point, I think, is this. The more we resist Satan, the more determined he becomes. He becomes desperate. You see... What did he do in the temptations? Ironically, he attacks increasingly stronger points in Christ's life. He expects less, but he attacks stronger points. The the, the first need that Jesus had was hunger. He'd been fasting 40 days and 40 nights, and so he attacks a physical need of Jesus. Physical need, food. And and then the next temptation, he, he ratchets it up. He goes to an even stronger stronghold than that. He attacks his obedience to the Father and putting the Lord to the test. And then when that doesn't work, he then goes for the ultimate stronghold, and that is his identity and his relationship with the Father. Just worship me. Well, that's Jesus is his whole identity. <laughs> he's the Lord of all creation. Yes, he's a human. He's poured his glory out, but he's the Lord of all creation. He is part of the Trinitarian God. He attacks the very identity of Christ the Son of God. I think this is instructive for us, friends. Satan doesn't just attack your weaknesses. You see, we have these things in our lives that we think we're invulnerable at. Satan will never attack me with this. You see, I've conquered that. I've never had a problem with that. And it's about that time that he does what? He does an end run on us. He blindsides us from the left side, the blind side. (laughs) And then we're caught unawares. Folks, battles are not won by defeating the reserves. Now, now I know that, we, that, that in, a, in a great battle, a, gr- a good commander will try to neutralize the reserves so that they cannot be brought into effect in the battlefield. But the battle is not won against the reserves, the battle is, is won by what? Defeating the stronghold of the enemy. And that is what Satan wants to do with us. He wants to defeat our strongholds. As a matter of fact, I would suggest this to you, <laughs> that Satan's not too concerned about the weak and the faith. Oh, he attacks them too. What he really wants to do is he wants to attack and defeat those that are the strongest in the faith, and he wants to attack our strongholds. Beware of Satan. He is a great deceiver, and he can surprise us. He's the father of lies. We know that. That is his very nature. When you look at the Lucan account, he does this, he lies. Uh, Now, he he lies throughout the Matthew account. But specifically in the Lucan account, he he looks at Jesus and he says this. You see, all of this is mine. And in the Matthew account, he says he'll give it to it. But in the Lucan account, he says, all of this is mine. It's been handed over to me and I give it to whomever I wish. That's a flat lie. He is the deceiver. He disguises himself as the angel of light. With his deceptive plans, he employs superhuman demonic forces to accomplish his will. So we need to be on guard, folks, not just against our weaknesses, but against our strengths. We must not be self-reliant. None of us has the power to resist Satan in our own power. Paul tells us that nothing good dwells within us. The bad that is within us continues to rise up and to want to take over. The Lord is our strength. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. Because you see, my power is made perfect in weakness. We are weak and we're vulnerable. And he strengthens us, not in our power, but through his. Be strong in the Lord. We sang it this morning. Be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Be strong in him. Stand firm. Stand firm. Folks, we need to know scripture, but Satan knows it as well. We see in this account, the second Temptation. Satan knows scripture and he knows how to misuse it. He quotes Psalm 91 that we sang this morning, that we read this morning. But the funny thing about it is he has almost no spiritual discernment. You see, we have the Holy Spirit that dwells in us if we're followers, if we're believers in Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit helps us to understand and discern the Word of God and to apply it properly. Satan has virtually no spiritual discernment. He just quotes these things, you see, and tries to fool us. Don't let people quote Scripture out of context to defeat your witness in Christ. You see what Jesus does, and we see this. He fulfilled each one of these then passages that he quoted. Bread, he became the bread of life. Testing God, when the scribes and the Pharisees come to him asking for a sign, he said, don't you know, all you're doing is you're trying to test me. This is an evil generation. We do not, you do not test me, I do not test God. He refused to presume upon his relationship with the Father and to test him in the garden. I'm your son. He didn't bargain with God the Father. He didn't test him. He submitted. Look at the third temptation, worshiping God. We've already really covered that, you know. He taught people how to worship God alone with a Samaritan woman, to worship him in spirit and truth. And then what happens after he has been tempted and tried and crucified and resurrected? Then what has happened? the one that is to be worshiped. The Father then makes his name above all names so that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ, who was in the wilderness tempted by the devil, is Lord indeed. Let me close with two very brief final observations. We need to remember this, friends. Temptation is a barometer. Temptation is a measurement. If we encounter no temptation in life, and I'm I'm not talking about the trials and difficulties, I'm talking about temptation. If you're never tempted to do something wrong in your life, if your strongholds are never attacked and mine aren't, then we need to ask this question. How effectively have we been in fighting Satan? It may just be that we're very ineffective and Satan isn't worried about us. We're weak in faith. He's concerned about defeating strongholds. If we do encounter trials, yes, but if we do encounter temptation, that may be a sign that Satan's really working. (laughs) He's working to do what? To divert our strength. To focus on us. And when we do that, we take his attention off of the weak ones, maybe. I don't know. It's a sign that then, indeed, we are making a difference for God. Does it bother you when you're tempted? It bothers me we need to do what? Resist Satan? Rely on God and know what's happening here. Satan may see you as a threat to his kingdom and you need to resist him and to tell him what? Be gone. Final observation, never give up, never give up. The more we persist, the more he then persists. The more we resist, the more he persists. That means that we must persist, always, Take your trials and temptations to the Lord. You see, his faithfulness outlasts Satan's persistence. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never, never be discouraged. We take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Yes, Jesus knows our every weakness, and we take it to the Lord in prayer. Don't give counsel to sin, friends. Don't give Satan a toehold. Be honest with God and be honest with yourself. We're all vulnerable and we need to repent with godly sorrow when we sin. First, submit to God, then resist Satan, and then tell him to go away. Follow Christ's example. Rely on his strength, not your own. Rejoice. Not only in your trials and victories, but also in the temptations that come your way because they are strengthening your witness and your faith. And remain watchful. Be vigilant. Watch out. Stay alert. Satan is always prowling, seeking whom he may devour. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given your son not only as an example for us to follow, but you have also given him as a companion to walk along the way. We thank you that you have given us an emergency plan for trouble and trials and adversity in our life. And it's not just a set of principles. And yes, it is embodied in your written word, and that's important that we commit to memory. But we thank you that that you have given us your living word, Jesus Christ, to walk along the way with us and to help us to resist temptation and to be obedient to you and to resist the evil one. For this we give you thanks. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen.